Throughout history, guys have done some just incredible things to get girls. One famous historical example is the king of Sparta. He fell in love with Helen of Troy and literally waged war on Troy to marry Helen. It's pretty crazy. But for a modern example, uh, one of the wildest stories I've ever heard of a guy pursuing a girl comes from a guy named Arthur Brooks. So Brooks was a prominent author, professor at Harvard, and former president of the American Enterprise Institute. And when he was 24 years old, Brooks met a girl in Spain while on a week-long trip to Europe. And he was wonderstruck by this girl, but there were two big problems. Number one, they didn't live on the same continent. And number two, they didn't speak a single word of the same language. But Brooks was still wonderstruck. And after meeting the girl, Brooks immediately phoned his dad and told his father that he thought he'd met his future wife. And in kind of his own recollection of the story in an article in The Atlantic, Brooks says this, after a year punctuated by two frustratingly short visits, I quit my job in New York and I moved to Barcelona with a plan to learn the language and a prayer that she would actually understand me and that she might love me. And after multiple trips, uh, learning a new language, lots of misunderstandings as he learned the language and many emotional ups and downs, Arthur Brooks finally married the love of his life and they are still married to this day 30 years later. So Arthur Brooks quit his job, moved to another continent and learned a new language to get a girl. So the important question here is, guys, what are you even doing? I mean, come on. <laughs> so uh, don't tell me you have to work hard. This, this guy's incredible. But uh, believe it or not, none of those stories or any of the ones that you guys shared uh, is, in doubt, you know, is even close to the most incredible thing a guy has done to, to get a girl. And the most amazing story isn't an obscure one from history or anything like that, but it's a story all of you guys are familiar with. In fact, we just sang about this story a second ago. The guy's name is Jesus, and he gave up his very own life for his bride. He experienced the just wrath of God for sinners, and he gave up his own life for his church, that he'd be able to marry her. And the Apostle Paul points out this very thing in Acts 20:28 20, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders, and he said this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul speaks of Jesus' sacrifice for his bride, the church, even more clearly in Ephesians 5 when he says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. But he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ, and Jesus loves her dearly, so much so that he would give his very own life for her. So this leads us to an important implication. You cannot love Jesus and despise his bride. You cannot love Jesus and despise his bride. If you love Jesus and you want to follow him, you have to be passionate about what he's passionate about. And the Bible makes clear that Jesus is passionate about his bride and that he cares for. 
Therefore, if we love Jesus and we want to follow him, we have to care for his bride, the church. In fact, Ephesians 5 tells us this precisely when it says this, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one is hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and in the church. So again, Jesus is joined to his church. So if we are to be followers of Christ, it means that we are part of the church, and therefore we should care about the church. If we neglect the church, we hurt ourselves and we demean what Christ loves. Now, we might say that, you know, we love the church, but our, do our actions actually display that we love the church? Do we follow what scripture says about the church? We might say that we care about the church, but, you know, we're nervous about theology or talking about the church because we think theology divides. We might say that, okay, no, 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 I don't need theology. I, I just need Jesus. I just want to follow him and what he has to say. But, of course, that's not the approach that Jesus takes. Jesus has a theology of the church. He has beliefs about the church. So if we truly want to follow Jesus and love what he loves, then we must follow what he says about his church in his word. So our goal tonight with this next installment in our foundation series is to look at what Jesus says about the church through his word and see how it all applies to us. We'll start to see a big picture overview at the, at the beginning, really, of what is the church and make some distinctions there. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time focusing on what it means to be a member of a church. We want to talk about our everyday experience with the church. So that's, that's kind of where we're going. My hope is that this would be really, really practical for you as you walk away. This is not meant to be in the clouds at all. So with that intro, let's go ahead and dive in by defining what the church really is. The church is not a building but a body. The church is not a building, but a body. And more precisely, the church is an assembly of the believers who make up the body of Christ. So within this definition, we can see that the church has two specific forms, and the Bible uses the word church to refer to both of these different forms at different times. The first form of the church that we see in Scripture is the universal church. The universal church is the assembly of all believers from every nation, tribe, and language throughout all time. It's the spiritual gathering of all Christians who have ever lived and will ever live. This form of the church will only be fully and physically gathered together when Jesus ushers in the new heavens and the new earth one day. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 gives us a picture of the incredible future physical gathering of the universal church when it says this, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All Christians who have ever lived are members of the universal church. And Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, when he says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, 
so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So that's the universal church. So the universal church is the assembly of all believers from all time. The local church is one assembly of believers in one specific place at one specific time in history. Let me say that one more time. If the universal church is the assembly of all believers from all time, the local church is one assembly of believers in one specific place at one specific time in history. Put another way, the local church is the local and visible expression of the broader and currently invisible universal church. Local churches make up small portions of the larger universal church. Local churches are meant to be small pictures of the beauty of the universal church that has existed throughout the ages. And local churches are meant to be little pictures of the beauty and glory of Jesus in the way he has existed throughout all the ages. And we see so many different affirmations of this, of local churches in Scripture. So, for example, in the beginning chapters of Revelation, if you'll remember, Jesus addresses the seven churches of Asia individually. When he addresses these individual churches, he addresses individual local churches from each of those different places. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in many of his letters. In many of these letters, he is addressing specific problems and specific people at specific local churches. Of course, those letters are meant to build up the universal church. And that's why we're going to quote from them today. But they were originally intended for and written to individual local churches in Paul's day. For, for example, 1st and 2nd Corinthians are not just meant for the universal church, but they were specifically and originally written to address the local people and the local church in Corinth. We even see Jesus recognize the existence of universal and local churches in his words in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus, in that instance, is referring to the universal church. But two chapters later, in Matthew 18, Jesus uses the term church to refer to a local church. Listen to what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So notice... The term church there is referring to a specific local church where individuals could actually speak and interact face-to-face -face with one another. Jesus does not just recognize the universal and local church. He is the head of them both. Colossians 1, 18-20 affirms this when it says this, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus deeply loves 
the local and universal church. He loves them so much that he would give his life for them. And so therefore, we should love the universal and local church as well. So we've defined what the church is, and we've seen that the church has two distinct forms, the, the universal church and the local church. So now for really most of the rest of our time, I just want us to get really practical and talk about our everyday experience with the local church. Because for us, the local church is where we have our primary uh, interaction with the church body. This gathering of 20-somethings is unique in the scope of the church because we have so many different churches coming together to sing. And that's an amazing small picture of the universal church. It's a picture of heaven that we will experience one day when we sing praises to God from Christians of the universal church. But for us, the most important relationship we have with the church right now is our relationship with our local church. If you had to choose between coming to a Thursday night and a Sunday morning of a church you're a member of, I'm always going to tell you to attend the Sunday morning service of a church you've committed to and where the church family has covenanted with you to look out for you and to care for you. And we're going to talk about that for the, really the remainder of our time together. So in order to understand the local church and what the Bible says about our experience of the local church, we must understand what local church membership is. In our day, especially in the aftermath of the, the, really the pandemic, so much of the understanding and practice of people related to the church has changed. And honestly, a lot of churches are tempted to move away from church membership. It's really hard, especially coming back together after a pandemic. My plea in this message will be that churches actually continue the practice of church membership. Not only because it's historic and important, but because it's biblical. And I hope you'll see what I mean by that. Local church members are what make up the local church. Sometimes I think we can mistake that it's pastors that are really the core of the local church, but that's not true. Pastors are members before they're ever pastors. So again, it is local church members that make up the local church. Local church members are Christians who covenant together to care for one another hold one another accountable, sit under the teaching of Scripture, and to worship together as they proclaim the gospel to the world. Now, to be clear, the word church membership is not in the Bible, not explicitly at least, but it's similar to the Trinity, the word Trinity in this regard, that while the explicit word is not in Scripture, the concept and truth of it are everywhere. And I think you'll see that. It is just the Bible is saturated in language about the local church. For example, we see a picture of church membership in the first local church in existence, the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 after Peter's Pentecost sermon. Luke describes the scene for us like this, and they, the people of the church of Jerusalem, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were all selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Quick, quick pause. 
We always want you to bring your Bibles to 20-somethings because we're all about diving into the Word. Tonight's message has a lot of Bible all over the, all over the place. So you could be flipping back and forth. So my encouragement, have your Bible, but look to the screen because we've got all the Scripture here. You're going to see a lot of different verses. So, real quick, let's reflect on Acts chapter 2. Notice, people in the same area came together and they devoted themselves to the preaching of the apostles and to fellowship with one another. They broke bread together and they cared for one another. They consistently gathered together to worship. And it was this coming together that drew others into the family of God. And think about it. What does verse 47 tell us was the foundational requirement for them to join the church? It was becoming a Christian. They were added to the number day by day when they came to Christ. But this isn't the only instance in Scripture where we see local, local church membership displayed. We see it all over the place, especially in illustrations that demonstrate local church membership. So, for example, in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3, Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. This picture of the local church as a flock of sheep is helpful. First off, a flock of sheep implies that there are a specific number of sheep who make up a flock in one place at one time. In other words, the sheep are members of a specific flock, and specific sheep make up one specific flock. The elders are the shepherds who must know what the specific sheep are in their flock so they know which specific sheep to care for. This is a beautiful picture of church membership. Specific sheep who are members of a specific flock who were cared for by God-given shepherds. It's a beautiful picture of local church membership. Another beautiful illustration that points to church membership comes in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul uses the illustration of a body. He talks about how a body is made up of various parts, such as eyes and hands and feet and the head. And each of these parts needs one another. The body could not function properly with just one part, or if it was missing a part. These members make up one body. These members are specifically associated with one body, and they are joined together in order to work and serve together. Again, this is another really beautiful picture of church membership. God specifically provided the church with people of different gifts and talents and skills in order to serve one another in the church. Paul goes on to talk about how this is true in local churches in 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll see that in just a little bit. Paul is passionate about local church membership and the importance for the various church members to join together in a local body for the good of the local church and the universal church. So being part of a local church isn't just the benefit of your own church, but it actually benefits the broader body of Christ in the universal church. Another illustration, a final one from Scripture, we could say more, but just for the sake of time, just one more, is the picture of family. Um, in 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 4, Timothy and Peter refer to the church as a household or a family. Now think about it. What is a family made up of? Family members. Family members make up a family. And the local church is like a family who formally identifies with one another and loves and cares for one another. Now, notice this. Just showing up to family gatherings does not make someone a member of the family. For example, when I invited friends over to my house as a kid and they would eat dinner with my family and I, 
my family would treat my friends as if they were members of the family, but they didn't actually make my friends official members of the family. Uh, again, my, my parents care about my friends, but neither my parents nor my friends are legally bound to one another. If my friends fall and break their leg at school, you know, playing at recess, my parents are not on the hook to pay for my friends' medical bills or to care for them in that way. My friends' parents are the ones. My friends' family are the ones that are called to, to bring that really intimate care. doesn't mean my, my parents don't care about my friends, but there's not a legal relationship there. But if my parents were to adopt my friends, the whole situation changes. Because when there's an adoption, there's a legal and formal commitment that they're joining together as members of the same family. And so therefore, my, my parents would be charged with, with paying the medical bills uh, of my friends or caring for my friends in that way. And additionally, my friend, as a newly adopted member of my family, would be called to care for the other members of my family as they are cared for by my friend. Again, the same is gonna be true of the local church. If you just attend church gatherings, that doesn't make you a member of a church. So it could be a quick moment for you to consider, am I actually a member of a local church? Because if I just attend, that doesn't by itself make me a member. Even if I've attended for 20 years, if I have not covenanted together with that church, I'm not, a, I'm not formally a member of that family. It'd be something to, to, to research because it's an important relationship. The church, uh, and the church family and its members may treat you like family, but again, if you are not a member, you are not formally part of the church family. Pastors are not accountable to God to care for you like they are to care for the people who are formal members of the church. Hebrews 13 specifically tells us that pastors are held accountable for how they care for the members of the flock they are given. Similarly, if you haven't committed to formal church membership, you have not identified yourself as a member of the family and have not committed yourself to be cared for by the church and to care for the members of that church. As someone that works in the local church all of the time, I see people who attend church but never officially become members, and yet they, they consider themselves members. They expect the same level of care as members and expect their voice to, and vote to be considered just as much as formal members simply because they attend. Now again, to be clear, I am so thrilled those individuals are coming. This is not to say that if you're not a member, you shouldn't come to church. No, you should. But I want them to be drawn into the family so that they would com commit to being part of the family and they would not only be cared for really well and they'd be known, but then they would commit to care for others in their midst too. But again, because they have not made a formal commitment to become a member of the church, and they haven't made a formal commitment to care for others and submit to care, the assumption that they are a member doesn't have a basis. Now think about it this way. My friends, again, were always invited over to family dinner, but their regular attendance at dinner did not mean that they should expect that my parents would buy them a plane ticket for family vacation. And it didn't mean that they should expect to be able to vote on what city we were gonna to go to or what state we were gonna to go to for family vacation. You know, if we've ever been in that situation, of course, we kind of recognize that seems like kind of, kind of a, an over-the-top thing to expect. But if they were adopted members of the family and formerly members of the family, the whole situation is different. Their voice has a different kind of weight. And, and my parents and family are on the, the, the hook to care for them just in the way they're on the hook to care for the members of my family. Being an official member matters. And it's the same with local church membership. It's easy to hang around just for the benefits, 
but it's another thing to commit to care for and be cared for by a church family as a member. Again, to be clear, the benefits of church membership far outweigh the costs. To know you have a local church membership and a local church family committed to care for you and to encourage you is amazing. And caring for others in our church family gives us so much life and points us to the glory of Jesus. Even Jesus identified himself with the local church. Again, we've seen the reality of local church membership in the Bible, and we've seen its importance. So the next question we have to ask ourselves is whether or not we're a member of a local church. And if you're not, and you're a Christian, I would encourage you to ask yourself why. If you want to follow Jesus and his lifestyle, then you should become a member of a local church. In Acts 9, Paul is on his way to persecute the local church in Damascus. And on his way there, Jesus confronts Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? Did you catch that? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? In the words of Paul Alexander, Jesus identifies himself so closely with the local church that he considers himself persecuted when the local church is persecuted. So if Jesus identifies himself with the local church, we should too. And the way we formally identify ourselves with a local church is by becoming a member of a local church. That is a huge and important point for all of us. So we've talked about the biblical nature of church membership. Now let's talk about what does it take to become a member of a local church. Usually it takes one of two things. First is baptism. One way to become a member of a local church is to be baptized into the member, the membership of a local church. Baptism is the public proclamation of believers that they confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Romans 6 and Colossians 2 are clear about this. But baptism is not just a statement of the believer, but it's also a statement from the church baptizing the person. When a church baptizes someone, they are saying that they affirm the person's confession of faith and that they will care for and look out for the person for the sake of their soul and for the name of Christ. The congregation is affirming that the individual is a Christian and is committing to help the individual persevere in their walk with Christ. The baptism ceremony is similar to a wedding ceremony. Think about it. As a, at a traditional wedding ceremony, you'll hear this line. Should anyone, pres- uh, should anyone present know of any reason that this couple should not be joined in holy matrimony, speak now or forever hold your peace. Now, you may have heard that in a wedding and thought, oh, okay, that's kind of archaic. Why, why are they saying that? Well, the reason that line is uttered is because that congregation that is gathered for that wedding ceremony, it, it's typically made up of family and friends that have been with that couple all along the way. And, and that's an important thing to think about because those people who make up that congregation have been with that couple, they've seen their love develop, and they would know if the couple's profession of love to one another is genuine or not. They would know if that couple uh, are being infidelitous to one another. They would know if there's an affair going on, and they could report that. But what they're also implicitly committing to in that process is not just saying that the love is real, but it's that they're going to come alongside them and support them and help their marriage and love flourish so that their declaration is not just a one-time declaration of love, but a lifetime declaration of love. The same thing is taking place at a local church when someone is baptized. When you are gathered together in that moment and you see someone baptized 
and you're a member of a local church, you're, you are implicitly affirming that that person is a Christian to the best of your knowledge, but also you're saying, as a member of this local church, and this person is going to become a member of my local church, I'm going to walk alongside them every step of the way to the best of my ability so that they would love Jesus for the rest of their life. That This would not just be a one-and-done deal. To know that you have a whole church family doing that for you is so beautiful and profound. Following baptism, the next and final step to becoming a member of a church is to sign the church covenant. By signing the church covenant, you are affirming that you agree with the local church theologically in key issues and that you are submitting to the care of the church and you are saying that you will care for the other members of that church. Now, if you've already been baptized as a believer, then uh, instead of being baptized again, what often you will do is you'll have a membership interview. And the purpose of this is just so that the pastors or, or elders of the church can see some kind of affirmation that you really are a Christian. Because remember, the local church is made up of Christians. It's not a mixed body in that sense. And so after this interview, you, you know, and they can tell, okay, they, they see the fruit of the Spirit in your life and that you're confessing Jesus as Lord. It's at that point that they will have you sign the membership covenant once they know you are a member of the universal church. Now notice, churches have you sign a church covenant and not a church contract. That language is intentional. Contracts are intentionally written to highlight how they may be broken. They're meant to mitigate sacrifice and commitment. Covenants, on the other hand, are meant to emphasize trust and love. A covenant does not highlight how to break the agreement, but how each party is committing to hold to their commitment, even when the other party fails to hold up their end of the deal. And we see examples of this all over Scripture, from God to His people, but also we get a picture of this in the local church in Acts chapter 2. Let me just read that passage one more time. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Notice that the specific language is that the members of the local church of Jerusalem devoted themselves to fellowship with one another. And then the passage goes on to say that even when some church members were poor and could bring nothing of material benefit for richer church members, the richer church members shared their lives and belonging with one another so that no one had any need. If you think about that very much at all, you see that's not contract language. That's covenant language. It would be easy for that rich church member to say, you're not bringing anything to the table that benefits me, I'm out. But that's not what's going on. This is family language. This is covenant language. Becoming a member of a local church is a biblical and glorious thing. And just for me personally, being a member of Pleasant Valley Baptist Church has been one of the greatest honors of my life. I mean, being part of this church family and being cared for by them as well as caring for many of the members myself has just been a huge privilege. My, my life and my walk with Christ are so much stronger because I'm part of this church family. 
And I pray that it would be the same for you with whatever church you are a part of. If you're not a member of a local church, I'd encourage you to talk to your pastor and ask him what the process is of becoming a member of your local church. You, you will not regret it. So, once you're a member of the church, what are your responsibilities and privileges as a member of the local church? This is where I want us to kind of close out. I just want us to talk through just a few basic responsibilities and privileges as members of the local church, and then just give a little scripture and explanation for them. Primary duty number one of a local church member is also a primary duty and privilege of all Christians, and it's this, to make disciples and to teach them to follow Jesus. Jesus explicitly tells us this in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, when he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice, Jesus didn't tell just pastors to make disciples. This great commission is for all believers, all of us, are called to share the gospel. The first time your unbelieving friend hears the gospel should not be when Pastor Merle or Pastor Tim Fritchin preaches the gospel in a sermon. No, your unbelieving friend should hear the gospel from you way before they ever step into the church building. Our job is not to pawn off sharing the gospel, sharing evangelism to our pastors. We are intimately involved in that process. And quite frankly, we have a better voice with our unbelieving friends and family than our pastors do. They have no relationship with those people. We do. Those people trust us. And so we need to take evangelism seriously as a core part of what it means to be a local church member. And additionally, I would just say, not just making, you know, sharing the gospel with them, that they would become Christians, but then helping them get into the local church so that they would be discipled and follow all that Jesus has taught. Next responsibility and privilege as a local church member is to bear with one another in love. Colossians 3, 12 to 14 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul put it another way in 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 26, when he's writing to the local church at Corinth. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, if all, if, if one member suffers, all members suffer together. If one member is dishonored, uh, all members are dishonored. And if a member is honored, all rejoice together. We are called to love the members of our local church family and care for them. This is the beauty and the strength of the local church, that her members love one another and care for one another and do that focused on the hope of the gospel. Next, next duty and responsibility of a local church member is to live generously. And to be clear, this doesn't just mean uh, tithe. That, that, that's not what I'm getting at. It'd be easy to say, oh, okay, look at the pastor talking about giving money to the church. That, that's not my intent. No, no, no. I, I mean a whole life generosity. 
The deeper point is that we are called to live generously with all of our lives, not just our finances, but with our time and our talents and our energy. Acts 2 gives us a beautiful picture of this. The whole church was generous with their finances, their gifts and talents, and serve one another. For many of us here, the way we might live more generously might just be with our time and our talents. If you are not serving in your community or your local church in some way that builds others up, you should probably ask yourself why. What would it look like to live more generously with your time and your talents? You have no idea how you might bless other people with your service. If you come home and play video games every day and are not a member of your local church and serving in your local church, you might want to ask God what it looks like to be more generous with your time and with your talents. Again, you you could bless people in an amazing way by, by being generous with your time and talents in the local church. This leads us to our next responsibility and privilege, which we're kind of already covering. This one's brief. Use your gifts and talents to build up the church. We are called to use our gifts and talents to build one another up. And again, that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 14. Next responsibility is to to gather together and to worship together. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says this clearly when it says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are called to meet together, to worship in one another's presence. And the author of Hebrews doesn't mince words. God, speaking to the author of Hebrews, tells us that we need to gather together. This means attending church uh, only when it's convenient is not the option of Scripture. One of your clear and core callings as a member of the church is to actually worship with the rest of the members of the church. Colossians 3, 15 to 17 furthers this when it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, not only are we told that we are supposed to gather together on the Lord's Day, we are shown what to do when we gather. We should listen to God's Word be preached, sing psalms and spiritual songs together, and to encourage one another. That sounds like a glorious gathering, and it's what we get to do as local church members every single Sunday. Next responsibility is to build up the members of the local church. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us this, and this is going to be a key passage here. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you were saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. 
Tongues are a sign for be- not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I don't read that passage to start a debate about tongues or the sign gifts. That's not the point at all. I read it to highlight this point. We are called to use our gifts to build up the body. But this passage has a really important implication. 1 Corinthians 14 shows us that Sunday morning church gatherings are primarily meant for believers rather than non-Christians. Think about that. Maybe you've never thought about that before. 1 Corinthians 14 shows us that Sunday morning gatherings of the local church, the local body, are primarily meant for believers rather than unbelievers. Now, to be clear, this is not to say that unbelievers aren't welcome to Sunday services. Of course they are. Uh, Of course they are. And, And Paul is clear about this in the passage. But notice, Paul speaks about the use of gifts. They are building up the members of the church. His point about unbelievers is just to say that we should conduct our church services in a way that if unbelievers were to walk in, they would have some idea of what's going on. So they would hear the gospel and that God might do a work in their heart. But the core of Sunday services are meant to equip believers so that those believers can go out and share the gospel with unbelievers throughout the rest of the week. Sunday morning should be like a recharge for believers so that we can go out and proclaim the gospel when we step out into our community. This just leads to an important aside, and to be honest, this one, this one may, may poke at the bear a little bit, but I think this is important. I want to take a, just a, a second to pull together some of the things we've talked about uh, related to church members, just to make an important point. We have said that local church members are called to gather together, to build one another up, to live generously with our time and talents, and to bear with one another in love. I think this has implications for how we think about doing church online. Now, let me be clear. Online church is a huge gift. If we were alive a thousand years ago and could not get out in the midst of a pandemic, uh, we would have no way to attend a church service or hear the gospel preached in the same way. We are just so spoiled by technology today. It's amazing. The fact that there are folks who are not in a place to be able to healthily get out yet, that can still have some semblance of connection with their church, that can hear the gospel preach and hear worship, I am so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. But, but, if we were to fast forward time a little bit, the pandemic slows down, the, 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 the incredibly high risk has slowed down, and we are healthy individuals, who are not caring for someone that's immunocompromised in some way, I think we would be in disobedience if we did not seek to attend a local church and instead just watch service online. That was our only engagement with the church. Because I think that if we were to look through all of the responsibilities and privileges of local church members, it would be impossible to do them if our only engagement with the church was sitting on our couch in our PJs 
watching service. Again, I, I'm not talking about the folks that are in, are in a, a, a position of health where they really do need to do that in this season. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not talking to them. But for some of us here, we have grown so comfortable rolling out of bed at 10.59, turning on the TV in our PJs, making coffee while the service starts, and we never interact with another believer throughout the week in our local church. We're not using our time and talents in any way. We're not in the local gathering to be able to hear people sing, to be able to look out for people, to be able to look out for members that may be hurting, that there's not a way for us to be generous with our time and our talents if, if we never engage with the church in that way. I, I just don't see a way that we can follow Scripture's commands about being a member of a local church if our only engagement is online. Again, for some of you, that may be, that, that may be a little bit convicting. And I'm happy to talk more about that afterwards. But what I want you to consider is that it is a good thing for us to be together. And I want to challenge us as we go forward, and Lord willing, as things relax from the pandemic, where we can take the masks off, when social distancing goes away, and we really get to come back together, that you would have that in your mind, that you need to be actively part of a local church. The pandemic has taught us that isolation is so dangerous, and we need to be together. It is good to be around other people that are looking out for you. Um, final, final two points. We're not even going to camp out on these because uh, I know we're going long. It would just be another key responsibility of, of local church members is to uh, elect and ordain elders and deacons. Hebrews 10, 13 to 17 tells us, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We see in Acts 6 of the, of the election and the ordination of deacons to be able to serve in the church. Individuals uh, of good repute, solid Christians who are pursuing after the Lord and are living in holiness. And that their privilege is they get to look after the members of their local body. So that if you are a member of a local church, you have elders and deacons that you are a part of electing and ordaining that, that look out for your soul and are accountable to God for your soul. That is a blessing and a gift. Uh, also, uh, church discipline. This is part of, of this, and we could do a whole other lesson on this. But all I'll say about church discipline, this is a key duty uh, of a church member, of a local church member. We see it in 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. And the purpose of church discipline is, is not to exclude in, in any sense, but it's actually to build up, to, to help push us to holiness. And anytime church discipline is done, it is always done with the, the objective of restoration and with love, so that people would be pointed to the gospel. And I, I could share some amazing stories about how church discipline has driven people to the gospel and actually shown people that they weren't Christians in the first place. But again, bigger topic. We can talk more about that another time, but that is an important part about it being a member of a local church. Final, final point. Our final responsibility as local church members is to proclaim the gospel together. We are to make disciples, we are to worship, and we are to proclaim the gospel together in worship and in the midst of the church as we care for one another. We get to proclaim the gospel that tells us that Jesus shed his very blood for the sake of the church. We get to sing praises about the gospel that, that actually created the local and the universal church. And we get to sing the praises of the gospel uh, in such a beautiful way not only in our local bodies, but the same one that we will proclaim with the universal church in glory, just like Revelation says. So, let's pray.
God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have given us the church. And God, that we get to be members of that body. And God, would you help us to take our membership in the local church seriously? God, that we would care for the church's members. God, that we would love one another well. We'd feel the weight of that responsibility, but God, we would feel the joy of being part of a local church. Because we know not only is it good for our souls, but ultimately being invested in the life of the local church is going to help the universal church. That God, through the church, you are using us to be equipped together so that we can go out and share the gospel and draw more people to be part of both local churches and the church universal. So we could sing about the way you shed your blood for your church for all of eternity. Jesus, we thank you for giving your life for us. We thank you for your spirit, which gives us redemption. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.